1: Hello everyone, this is Gargi, and today I have with me Judith Misrahi Barak. She teaches at the University of Montpellier Troyes in France. Uh, She's interested in English and post-colonial literatures. She's the author of numerous articles on Caribbean region and Indian Ocean, and the diaspora writings from the regions. Uh, I'm also joined, joined by Ashutosh He is a bilingual journalist, fiction writer and literary critic. Uh, as a journalist, he has traveled across central India and documented the condition of tribal regions caught between the uh, insurgency and the police violence. They have together edited This book called uh, Kalapani Crossings, Revisiting 19th Century Migrations from India's Perspective, published with Routledge late last year, and have very kindly accepted to talk to me about this book. Um, Hello, Judith. Hello, Ashutosh. How are you?
0: Hi, Gargi. Good. Thanks for inviting us.
1: So uh, my first question is always about the genesis, but before I do that, your Google bio tells me that you have had two very different journeys. How did you come together and how did the whole group um, of uh, people who have written for this book come together?
2: Yes, it's always interesting to get into, you know, genesis of books and ideas and, uh, and in this case... I mean, it was a kind of, you know, leap in the dark and a series of coincidences and happy happenings um, as well. So that was, um, it all happened in Shimla, in fact. So I was invited the first time uh, to Shimla as a visiting professor for a short while, back in March 2018. And so as part of my visiting professorship, I had, you know, a talk to give. And so I, I gave a talk on... Uh, something I was I had just started working on uh, that is Calapani crossings and I know we'll come back on that uh, later on in the discussion Um, but my suggestion you know it was I was trying to um, invite people to reconsider and to change their perspective because uh, I had been working for many many years with diaspora scholars and I was interested in you know since I had started coming to India for you know, quite a long time, since 2008. Um, I was interested in, you know, that shift, in fact, in the perspective. So when I arrived in Shimla, I gave that talk and Ashutosh was uh, one of the fellows at uh, the Institute of Advanced Study um, in Shimla. And so he obviously you know, got interested and we started talking and developing a conversation. Um, then we stayed in touch, we continued the conversation. And then um, there was that possibility that we could you know, co-organize a seminar since it seems that there was some interest uh, about the theme of Kalapani Crossings and the shifting of the perspective so that we could organize an international seminar. And then the IAS actually accepted the proposal. And it all started from there. So um, the seminar actually happened in 2019. So a year after we had met, and it was by invitation only. So we invited, you know, specific people, people I had been working with for quite a few years. uh, But generally it was scholars it was diaspora scholars so scholars who had been used to working on migrations from india from their diasporic perspectives so there were you know stellar um scholars in australia in mauritius in uh, in the us and elsewhere but we made a proposal to them would you be able to reconsider, in fact, all the work you have done uh, and reconsider from a different perspective. And we would, you know, get together. So it was not exactly a conference. It was not. It was an international seminar. Uh, We did open it up to um, uh, other people apart from the invited guests. So that was also very interesting. Um, And so that that's how the discussion, you know, started and. We'll we'll say a bit more about, you know, um, how the seminar actually went, and also what it led to. But that that is uh, probably another question.
1: Mm-hmm. Ashutosh, you would like to add something?
0: Well, let me add the India chapter uh, to the what uh, what Judith has said. So when she visited the Shimla Institute, as a visiting professor, I was a fellow there as she has said. So I was hugely impressed by this uh, French woman, but till then uh, we had not developed any friendship or any bond. Uh, she was just a stranger. So I was impressed by this French woman who had immense interest in India and who I soon realized knew more about India and Indian issues than most Indians I know of. Third, she had a genuine empathy towards what we call the marginalized and the depressed classes. She had been working on the Dalits, and she wanted to understand more and more about the Adivasis. Adivasi was the issue by which, on which I had already worked over the last several years before I came to Shimla. So this formed the basis of uh, an intellectual partnership in our initial months. Uh, and as the conversations grew between both of us please know that we, i was in shimla and she was in france so our conversations were mostly on emails they were only occasional phone calls so we were exploring certain themes through our emails and then during that exploration that examination we came across the idea of uh, the kalapani and the and the and the, and the migration uh, uh, of the indentured laborers from india So this is how now Judith said uh, the conference took place in 2019. I would also add it took place in 2019 September. So we are meeting in 2018 March and the conference takes place one and a half years over one and a half years after that. So it shows how much time that went into the uh, went the doing the groundwork or spade work of this conference. So it it, it wasn't uh, and 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 during this period both of us were in different continents. We were only conversing through our uh, through emails, through phone calls. And then uh, then Judith has said that then we once we had some idea ready, we then started inviting scholars from all over the world, some Indians as well who were located in India who have done work on the diaspora theme. And then this this is how we all came together. So it it all began, uh, you can say on a March evening when we met in Shimla.
1: Yeah, it does sound like a good story. Uh, so let's come back uh, to the book. What were your, some initial ideas when you started writing this book? When, I mean, when the book started to come together?
2: Yeah, so um, in fact, it's a direct follow-up on the seminar that happened in uh, in shimla uh because we had brought this group together um so it was a group of about you know 20 30 people um well 20 speakers and then there was you know audience as well so uh there were papers the papers were discussed there were you know discussions and debates um, and, um, and we wanted to um, keep a trace uh, of all this and also give an opportunity to people so that they could actually improve and include some of the discussions and some of the, the conversations that happened during the seminar in written form. So um, again, I mean, the, the basis of uh, the proposal that we made to these people and these uh, scholars was to try and reverse the perspective you know because they had been you know working from diaspora uh mostly but also we were interested in the conversation between diaspora scholars and indian scholars or at least scholars based in india and so um so i wanted to you know break the mold um in a way that, you know, a lot of people feel very comfortable in. That is, some people work in the diaspora, some people work in India, and there is, you know, there isn't necessarily a conversation between the scholars, even though they should be connected through the idea of migration, migration away from India or back to India. So this notion of migration uh, was... um, quite at the you know at the basis at the beginning of the uh, of the conversation uh, as well and then um in order to make um, a book and to produce a book and a co-edited volume of course it needs another kind of effort of course you need a publisher uh but in order to convince the publisher that it's going to be a worthy book and that it's going to be interesting and to sell uh as well, you need to you know put a good group together. you need to go through double blind peer reviewing, you need to do the pre-selection, you need to do the revising you need I mean it's not only it's definitely not the proceedings of the seminar. It is I mean some some people sent you know their articles without having worked on on the the written. Uh, form and so those were not included in the book. Uh, some chapters had to be revised, some chapters had to be, you know. So it's been it's been um, I mean um, as an academic, uh, maybe it was kind of a you know a new thing for Ashutosh as a journalist, but as an academic, uh, we are used to that kind of thing. It is part of the of the job we do uh, in order to push people, in fact, uh, to support people so that they can actually give the best of what they can give. Um, And so there's been, you know, a lot of work on the on the chapters themselves um, as well. And so it's definitely not, you know, proceedings of a conference. I mean, this is absolutely not done anymore. I mean, it doesn't have any value, you know. And then of course, we had this introduction. So uh, the introduction reflects, in a way, I mean, the conversations that Ashutosh was talking about, you know, just a few minutes ago. So across continents and across uh, across disciplines as well. You know, he being a journalist and, and uh, me an academic, and uh, and of course he being more than a journalist and me being more than an academic. I mean, obviously, you know. So this has been um, developing um, as well, and this is. Um, uh, probably, I mean, it was also linked to, you know, the potential um, previous interests that um, Ashutosh mentioned. And you probably want to add something as well, Ashutosh.
0: But before that, before before adding about my interest, I would like to add here, uh, Gargi, uh, the idea of the book or idea of an academic uh, output perhaps was not perhaps it was certainly ingrained in the very conversations about the seminar that i and judith took, uh, had earlier so we were clear right from the beginning that it was it will not be a mere seminar it will not be a mere conference where we are inviting uh, some scholars to read their papers we were certain about it that this will have it has to have some concrete academic output so i guess this what this is how uh, it differentiates our entire endeavor uh, from many such conferences and seminars that take place elsewhere, we we knew what we were going to achieve, what we what we intended, and I'm glad that we uh, achieved that or we realized that as well. Yeah,
1: um, and coming now. Um... To uh, you, Ashutosh, if you allow me to ask you, this has been published with the academic press and it is mostly written by people who are working somehow associate or associated with academia. You work as a journalist and a writer. Why did you choose to? Uh, to be involved in in what seems like, um, I mean, what is this more than journalist that you are, that Ju- Judith mentioned that you're more than a journalist and she's more than an academic. So how how did that, uh, because they, they are two different fields, aren't they?
0: Yeah, they are different fields, but uh, let's not forget that I was already uh, a fellow at an academic institution when I met Judith, or when this idea was germinated. I had already taken, if not left journalism, I was already on a sabbatical to do some kind of academic work. Of course, my academic work, Judith still doesn't count that as an academic work. What I believe is my academic, For Judith, I'm still doing some kind of creative or journalistic work. So yeah, she, she, she still doesn't count. Does not, she doesn't rank me among the high, doesn't take me to the high pedestal of academia what she believes it to be, but nevertheless, yeah. So, yeah, I was doing, I was trying to do some kind of academic work, which I thought is academic work. So, in that way, uh, during that phase of mine, when I was trying to do what I thought was academic work, I met Dr. Judith, Professor Judith. And as I said, I was impressed (laughs) by her. I was impressed by her. And then there were several factors. Number one, uh, there was a genuine interest in me, I had worked on the on, on, on Adivasi, I had written a book on the Adivasis. I had also, as a part of a journalist, been actively involved with various Dalit issues. So when Judith uh, brought the whole idea of uh, of the endangered laborers uh, on the table, uh, I realized that this, this will this is a continuation of what I had been working so far. In fact, later in the conversation, I'll just tell you a tale about the Adivasi indentures so yeah but coming to your question so part of partly her personality partly uh, my own interest and then the thrill the uh, of being into a new field a new adventure so all these factors uh, took me to uh, this joint effort which eventually came out in the form of a book yeah
2: but the uh, uh, yes uh the thrill of the new adventure i mean was there for me too but it was also there for um the scholars who actually participated in the in the seminar first and also in the book uh because they were also stepping out of their usual comfort zones and this stepping out of one's you know own comfort zone i mean is is something that is um um, yes, I mean thrilling in many ways, and uh, also you know support. I mean a, a lot of us. I mean uh, particularly you know Ashutosh and me in this in this context. So I think this is also what impressed the uh, the scholars and the the contributors uh, of the book that they w- they realized that they were able to move out of their comfort zones as well. You know um and so this is also why and maybe i'm anticipating um to probably one of the one of the other you know questions that we can uh discuss this whole question of um the kalapani you know you were you were asking a question about the content of the book and how you know how did the content uh, get together so um a lot of people have been asking us, you know, but why did you call it kalapadi? Kalapani, you know, crossings. Uh, and of course Ashutosh always, you know, laughs at me because I'm I, I'm still not quite there with my Hindi accent. So um, but that's fine. Um and so um it was also all meant to unsettle a certain number of you know customs things we take for granted. Um, And so shifting from the diaspora perspective to India's perspective um, was also something that, you know, was at the heart of the, of the endeavor and uh, adventure. Um,
1: Yeah. And that does lead very nicely into my next question, which is about the title of this book. And as far as i have understood you have used kalapani almost as like a keyword um, in in usually in india uh, where i'm also from uh, it is now stands for the southern coast um, at the islands at the southern uh, border of india uh, but you have used it for for the entirety uh, taking even to till um, the Macarena islands reunion mauritius if if one was to say, wouldn't oceanic humanities better suit this purpose, what would you respond to that? How would you respond to that? Well,
2: oceanic humanities is, is, is a much bigger field. Um, Kalapani crossings, I mean, literally, it means crossing of the dark waters. So historically speaking, it's not particularly connected, I mean, or it shouldn't be. Only connected to uh, the Andamans and uh, freedom fighters, you know, who were sent uh, to the Cellular Jail uh, in Port Blair uh, at the beginning of the century, at the beginning of the you know twentieth century. Um, so it is true that this is the meaning that Kalapani crossings has taken on in India, but in fact, the interesting thing is that it is not the meaning that is given to the phrase from the diaspora. In the diaspora and among diaspora scholars and people who have been working on Indo-Caribbean matters, Indo-Caribbean topics, literature, uh, history, et cetera, when they use the sentence or the phrase Kalapani crossings, they mean the migration away from India, crossing the Kalapani, moving away from Ganga waters, and potentially shedding their caste because the caste element you know has been uh, at the heart of the conversations during the seminar and in the book as well and there is that uh i mean one chapter particularly on that by Subhanas and gupta um who reconsiders uh in fact all this so um so in fact it's um Shifting back to India, you know, this Kalapani crossing, I mean, phrase has been traveling back and forth between India and the diaspora, Fiji, Mauritius, the Caribbean, South Africa, etc., with different meanings. And each country, each cultures, each, you know, set of scholars um, potentially have, you know, a different content, a different image content for it. So it's also uh that desire to uh shift it back into uh um you know on onto the indian plate um in a way and see what it has become you know see what that expression how it has traveled and how it has gained new meanings what do you make of those new meanings how do you um you know get back to and interpret in fact the 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 journey that the word has been um
0: um has been doing one more thing gagi here Uh, the words like oceanic humanities oceanic studies they are dry they are flavorless the word kalapani in india it has a harshness a hardness to it so we deliberately chose this word And also, Kalapani is, in in, in India, it is being used only in a particular context, the cellular jail of of the Andamans. We wanted to also question that the usage as well, that why Kalapani should be used only for this context. So there were a couple of factors. One, the Kalapani hits you hard. It it shakes you, Kalapani. I mean, it, it has some resonance among Indians. This word has a cultural memory. Oceanic humanities, oceanic studies—it does not have any memory. So, therefore, so it's deliberately that we chose a Hindi word for uh, for an academic book that is largely addressed to the uh, international audience. Yeah,
2: and also it is addressed to an Indian uh, audience as well. Yeah. I mean, it is, right. it is right. you know both parts of the of the dialogue.
0: Yes, certainly, certainly. I meant that despite being addressed to the international audience, we. Uh, decided to have a Hindi word here. Yes.
1: Uh, So the the title of the the whole title of the book is Kalapani Crossing, Revisiting Migration from India's Perspective. So now I want to come to India's perspective. Uh, First, why is there a need for it? And if you could also talk about what does it mean? What does India's perspective mean? Is it talking about the perspective of the Indian government, which is also sometimes often in the news when it comes to diaspora, or is it mean shifting the, the thing from the diaspora to the citizens of this country, as an in Indians who are living in India?
2: Yes, I mean, it all started from, you know, the realization, I mean, uh, several years ago that Whenever I was invited, you know, um to India and gave, you know, talks in at different institutions, etc., I mean, I sometimes picked the 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 topic of the migrations and then slowly started to speak about the migrations, you know, from India. And because I'm a Caribbean scholar, you know, first and foremost, um, I was constantly insisting on the Indian component of um Caribbean literature, you know, Indo Caribbean literature. And then slowly I realized that whenever I was talking about Indo Caribbean literature, there was only generally one big name (laughs) that was coming out, and that was V.S. Naipaul. But all the other, you know, younger generation uh, Indo Caribbean writers, I mean, not many people in India, even among the academic audiences, I mean, knew about them. Um, and when I started because I, I never you know deal with literature in only a literary way, I for me, it's always you know literature in context, obviously. So I always go back to the history, go back to the context, et etc. And when I had had those audiences of um, faculty, academics, students as well um, in front of me, I realized that they did not know anything about those migrations even among, you know, university professors. I mean, if there were not within that specific field, not many people knew about it. Students certainly did not know about it. And then I got confirmation that it was not part of the, um, you know, it was not on the on the syllabi. It was not taught in the schools. It was not taught at the universities, etc. cetera. So um, for me, Speaking of the Indian perspective, it's not so much the government, not so much the Indian states, but definitely the general public, um, readers, um, academics, students, potentially, you know, teenagers, I mean, who have, I mean, this, those migrations are absolutely not on their radar. So this was my, you know, intention. I mean, I I still, you know, it can sound um, very pretentious, very presumptuous to want to modify the perspective in another country that is not even your own country. But sometimes you achieve things as a foreigner. You achieve things from the outside that are difficult to achieve, you know, from the inside. But of course I have allies, you know, so I need a lot of allies and all my, you know, Indian uh, scholar friends and friends are allies in uh, in this you know endeavor. So for me, this is the what I have, you know, in mind about the Indian perspective. you know, it's a very general uh, kind of thing, but maybe you know, Ashutosh probably has another um notion of what the Indian perspective means.
0: For the last several decades, it was uh, after the economic liberalization in 1990s. It was believed that the Indian government should address the diaspora because they have enormous economic financial potential. But in the last 10-15 years or so, we have also seen that how the government is trying to address the religious aspect of this diaspora diaspora, and how the diaspora has been able to construct a Hindu identity uh, abroad, which is then helping the Hindutva elements or the Saffron Party back in India. the One example is that when Rishi Sunak becomes a British England's Prime Minister, in many Indians immediately started claiming, claiming as one of their own, as a faithful Hindu. But, but the story is not this. I didn't want to tell you this story. The story I want to tell here is that right from the 19th century, the diaspora, had, the indentured laborers, till then we were not even calling them diasporas, the laborers had been careers of a distinct Hindu identity, distinct in Hindu culture. For instance, Ram Sanadhiya, who wrote one of the earliest works, uh, earliest accounts of an indentured laborer in, in Fiji, how many people know that he started organizing Ramlila, that is the Ramayana. He started staging the Ramayana in Fiji. In the 1940s, when some RSS members, which is Rashtiya Swayamsevak Sivak Sangh, which is the parent body of the Bharti Janta Party, the, the, uh, the organization which is uh, heading India. Uh, the Prime Minister comes from both RSS as well as the BJP. So, in the 1940s, when some RSS members, volunteers, they travel to Africa on a ship, they hold a RSS meeting on the ship, and, by, and when they reach Kenya, they host, immediately start holding RSS meetings which, is, which are called as shakha in Kenya. And very soon from Kenya to several areas, countries of East Africa, are the Hind- these Hindu organizations start having their sway. So there is a history of this Hindutvaijajshem or a Hinduization of the diaspora. It has not occurred immediately. It needs to be addressed that if a lot of people are able are being able to claim Rishi Sunak as a faithful Hindu, there is a history of at least 100 years, maybe more than that. So the diaspora has been, right from the days of the indentured laborers, has been a career of Hindu identity. Unfortunately, this aspect has not been properly uh, studied so far.
2: And also, we can add that you know it's interesting in the case of Rishi Sunak because um, he's not—I mean, Indian. I mean, he is definitely a person of Indian, you know, descent. Uh, but although because. A lot of people have been, you know, making that distinction between the old diaspora and the new diasporas, um, speaking about, you know, um, Indians. But in his case, in the case of his family, I mean, his family actually moved to East Africa, as is, you know, well known um, now. So, in fact, he is a descendant. He's definitely a descendant. Uh, He's almost a descendant of the Kalapani crossings, because his family actually went, you know, to East Africa, Kenya, uh, etc. And then only in the 1960s, early 1960s, so 30 years later, 30 years after having left uh, India, they actually moved to the UK. Uh, so he's British born, but he's not Indian, even though he claims he is, you know, he is Hindu. Um, but in fact, he he goes back and his family goes back to um, the Kapani crossing's descendants. And so that old, you know, diaspora that a lot of people in India had thought, um, you know, would have to be swept under the carpet because they were uh, considered, even if it's not true, but they were considered as being only low caste, only, uh, you know, widows, uh, only... Um, poor people or poor Brahmins, you know, even though it was a you know a minority of it, but those people were, I mean, went to the plantations and went to sugar colonies, and they could easily be forgotten. They could be swept out of Indian history. Well, you know, now it's getting back onto onto the stage and the the uh, the presence of Rishi Sunak also is interesting in that aspect. So you cannot forget, uh, you know, a country must not and can forget um, where millions of people have gone and the reasons why they have left India in the first place. So this is also a kind of interrogation, you know, about what is happening at the present, in the present. Yeah
1: and you've also talked um about the development as if to say of a new field um which would be called kalapani studies uh, much like the black atlantic uh, which is now well established how would you define the contours of this new field you're proposing
2: yes the new field i mean the kalapani um studies i mean has been has been a new field in the diaspora for almost a generation now. I mean, people working, scholars uh, working on uh, the migrations from India towards, you know, Fiji, Mauritius, uh, the Caribbean, South Africa, uh, etc. So those um, crossings that are part of Kalapani, you know, crossings. Uh, But we could also potentially potentially involve all the crossings uh, and migrations to, you know, Malaysia. Uh, For instance, this would be another, you know, another field. Um, So for me, it would involve, you know, both the migration outward and potentially, you know, what happens to those uh, migrants, emigrants, immigrants. You know, you have all those words that obviously do not mean the same thing. Now there is a tendency among people uh, to use only the word migrants. But migrants, I mean, it's very different, isn't it, from uh, emigrants or immigrants? Migrants are all over the place. Migrants overwhelm, and it, they are they become an intrusive force, which was not the case when you use the word um, emigrant or immigrant. It had a direction. You well, knew exists. where they were leaving. You knew where they were. You know where they were um, uh, arriving migrants it reinforces the impression which is of course very political uh reinforces the impression that they are getting everywhere they are all over the place they cannot be controlled there is no direction um anymore you know so Calapani crossings i mean would be involved with um this you know these attempts was, at you know, understanding um understanding the way out and the way back, and also what emerges um, out of those migrations. What, I mean, what has been germinating? What has been, you know, what has been created? It's also on the creative um, level and dimension that I would like to put the stress for those, you know, Calabani crossings. It's, you know, creolization is, is part of it. This also is very political because creolization means, um, you know, all those um, instances of mixing and metissage, uh, and how you cannot be reduced to one single root. you know, then we're going back to glissant, obviously, uh, there is no one, you know, single root. there are only many origins and the multiplicity of origins. So this, I think, is also um, what could be interesting in the development of the field. You know, Kalapani, uh crossings. I mean, it's all those aspects that are linked to the migration, but also emphasise the creativity and the the realised, you know, creation of something that it's not simply one plus one. Obviously, uh, it's uh, it's the creation of a sub of a new element that cannot be summed up, you know, subsumed under simply the addition or the sum of the of the two previous elements. Mm
1: -hmm. Ashutosh, you were adding something, uh, you were saying something when it was about migrants.
0: No, I just said that there are several times like you have expats also.
1: Yeah, yeah. (laughs) coming now uh there in in the introduction uh there is this interesting comparison between the 2020 covid lockdown in india and what had happened to the um economic migrants the internal migrants sometimes that uh as as they're called in india and you have made comparison between these Kalapani crossings and what had happened during the lockdown um i want to understand how does um, this comparison help us better understand what had happened in the 19th century
0: see at first we i we means i and jurits we are making a very bold comparison we are identifying three major mig- migrations of the last three centuries 19th century during the uh, the kalapani migrations 20th century during the partition and now the COVID migrations. So we are trying to draw a certain pattern to it. That in all the three cases, people who were in distress, people who were primarily the victims of the state's inefficiency, uh, Mm -hmm. even at at times the deliberate atrocities, they were forced to migrate from their places, one. Two, uh, it is normally believed that during the kalapani migrations lower mostly lower caste people wanted to migrate to distant shores so as to escape their caste but that is not true there are accounts that even brahmins who were poor who were impoverished they also they also moved uh, to the distant shores there is a very interesting a- a- account by totaram saradi himself that he being a brahmin He was asked to conceal his caste while filling the form or while filling the affidavit about his migration and call himself to be a lower caste. So so that would make him uh, an easy entry uh, to the vessel. So people who were essentially uh, um, marginalized, not just caste wise, but uh, otherwise as well, they were the migrants. And we had seen that during the COVID crisis also, a large number of large number of laborers, daily wagers, small shopkeepers who had left their villages, who are working in the metro and capital cities, they were forced to migrate. So, so this explains now wh- why does it take place in twenty in twenty second century right now because of the state's apathy. So this explains what might have happened earlier, uh, two centuries before.
2: But also, I mean, shifting the perspective, you know, backwards. I mean, once again. Um, in order to be able to understand, I mean, the migrations as they happen, the internal migrations, but also uh migrations towards you know other countries, in order to understand that you need to keep in mind the Calapani you know crossings and the earlier 19th century migrations. So this is this is why I mean it's uh you know this kind of ongoing conversation between back back and forth um as well. And so caste oppression is still there uh, even more probably than you know uh, previously in the past and uh, migrations I mean you know in the middle of the of the world cup uh, we can also mention that and mention you know all the migrations from India to uh, the uh, UAE and uh, you know Emirates Mm -hmm. so this is also this has been you know, not so not so big in in people's consciousness, but now it's becoming, you know, big in the news because the scandals are so many, and so outrageous. Yeah. But it's again, it's to flee, you know, hunger and poverty and caste oppression. Uh, it's a kind of repetition, you know, tragic repetition of history, and of course, it's made worse when um, when pandemics happen. But it's not, it doesn't happen because of the pandemics. The pandemics only reveal what has been going on anyway. You know, so. Um, yeah.
1: Um, one author which has prominently been criticized in the introduction of the book is Naipaul. You have already mentioned Naipaul. Um, Specialist of Naipaul who I have talked to previously uh, would would say that um, instances where uh, he has uh, made racist comments or racist comments do not necessarily imply that he was a racist or racist. These are uh, examples of him trying to see the world through the diaspora and all the problems that come with it, and then ultimately showing that this fails in the contemporary world and so there is a need for a shift of perspective from the castes and the racism and I'm specifically referring here to the works of Sanjay Krishnan who was also there for this podcast when he published his VS Naipaul's Journeys. Would you agree to this claim or um, would you think that Naipaul is someone we should do away with?
2: Well, um, I'm sorry I haven't, you know, listened to the um, the podcast uh, you mentioned, and I haven't read uh, Sanjay Krishnan's uh, book. I, I will definitely do so, but I haven't, uh, you know, so far. In the in the book, I mean, the the chapter by Joshi Abraham uh, is actually, you know, going into great details uh, to quote from a lot of passages. Uh, and using a lot of excerpts, uh, you know, from uh, from Naipaul that actually tend to show and tend, I mean, I think it's very convincing, uh, tend to show that uh, it's not only, you know, trying to um, make things from another uh, perspective. I mean, he has this cast lens that he cannot shed, and he has this, uh, you know, Brahmin uh, lens also that he is constantly using. Um, one could have expected him to um, get into another kind of, uh, you know, perspective and to to shed and to get rid of of that casteist uh, approach, because of the journey uh, across Kalapani and uh, into the diaspora. I don't think this is the case. So I think we need to be even more cautious uh, when we talk about, you know, Naipaul and when we read him. He is an amazing writer. I mean, definitely. Uh, but his political stance, I mean, you know, you, you can hardly mention his name in the Caribbean uh, because of his political you know, stances uh, as well and what he has you know, written about the Caribbean. And um so he had a lot of scorn as well for uh for India, except when um when it came to you know Brahminism and high caste and his own caste that he had to uphold. And in fact, he rediscovered it and reclaimed it through the diasporic journey. This is also what Joshi Labraham tries to um you know, demonstrate in his uh, in his chapter. So instead of helping him to shed his caste, the diasporic journey has re-emphasized it and sort of uh you know enhanced it even more.
1: That ties up with what Ashtosh was saying about the Brahmanization of the Diaspora. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Um because uh, the works that you have talked about in the books are produced outside India as well as within uh, the subcontinent. I want to understand from you how um, should literary production outside uh, the country should mean for this country? Um, How should India deal with it or what should Indian literary production learn from these works? Well,
2: there is... um... You know, what is interesting is uh the fact that um those Caribbean, you know, writers, um, Indo-Caribbean writers have been increasingly taught in the at the university level, for instance. Um so they have been, you know, put on syllabi and uh students actually have been reading um you know, Ramabai Spinay and uh so Shani Mutu as well and what has um uh the book also by Gayu Trabajador, uh you know coolie woman that was a big you know it was a bestseller um book for um you know the indian indian audience and the the, the global um audience but there seems to be um, an interest um, in those, um, in those writings and those uh, books and and poems as well, um, probably because it talks back to concerns and issues um, that are particularly pregnant in India nowadays. That is again, uh, gender oppression, caste oppression uh, and seeing how the diasporic indo caribbean women for instance have been dealing with um patriarchal rules gender oppression caste oppression etc over there can also be an inspiration in india um so this is also you know my uh, my take and of course there have been you know the writings in hindi i mean ashutosh mentioned um, totaram For instance, so there were writings in Hindi uh, as well, a few, but maybe it is, you know, maybe it is on the rise um, as well, potentially.
0: I would add here, there is a lot uh, that the global diaspora scholarship can learn from uh, the writings in Indian languages. One particular note I, I would like to underline here, this is by... Ashwani Kumar Pankaj, Mati, Mati, Arkati. Now, Mati, we know soil. Arkati is a broker. So, he draws, in this novel, he draws our attention to a remarkable phenomena, which perhaps most scholarship has ignored so far, that in countries like Guena, Fiji, Suriname, Tobago, the diaspora mostly consists of the Bhojpuri-speaking population. So, the people who are at the top there, uh, among the Indian diaspora, they are th- they are those who are Bhojpuri ones. In Fiji, also several diaspora scholars also they trace their origins to the Bhojpuri-speaking areas. Now, what Pankaj tells us in this novel that among the earliest of the indentured laborers, they were not Bhojpuri-speaking; they were Adivasis from Jharkhand. But as I mentioned about the Brahminization, because in the social hierarchy here in India as well. These Bhojpuri speakers, even though of the lower caste, they were slightly above the Adivasis. When they go to these countries abroad, the Adivasi uh, Grimitiya, the Adivasi laborers, they remain at the lowest pedestal there as well. And their histories, their struggles are completely obliterated uh, from the diaspora literature there. So we see the diaspora scholarship as well as diaspora literature It's mostly about the Bhojpuri-speaking people. What about the Adivasis who went from there? So there is a need to focus on or learn from such works as well, which only dispossessed or marginalized communities in India can write, not the influential people, uh, not among the influential diaspora. Yeah.
1: Um, What do you hope the readers take from this book? A shift in perspective, a new gaze,
2: a new understanding of their own country, um, a revisiting of history as well, which possibly has to bring in a revisiting of one's understanding of the present.
0: Well, I believe, besides this, uh, readers, uh, when they read, when they look at the, the cover itself and then they see the two names are from two different continents, they are intrigued to explore such transcontinental uh, uh, relationships, which result in such a work. Because for me, it's a, it's a major event of my life to have this intellectual partnership and this book. So readers, apart from the content of the book, I'm sure, I, I hope that readers also learn a bit about the making of the book and get some inspiration out of it. Because it's been a fascinating process we had bitter fights also on several issues but at the same time it's been a learning absolutely that was well said yes oh. so please oh, if anybody who is listening to me please get into more and more such relationships because these are these will shake you out of your uh, prejudices uh, your own comfort zone than anything else perhaps mm. quite so mm.
1: Thank you, Judith. Thank you, Ashutosh, for joining me.
0: Thank you. Thank, Thank you, you so you. much, Gary.
2: Thank you. It's been a pleasure.